None of the content on this or any episode of the Kratom Science Podcast, Kratom Science Journal Club, or on any page of KratomScience.com is intended, nor should it be considered medical claims or medical advice. This is the Kratom Science Journal Club with Dr. Jonathan Cachet, neuroscientist and expert in psychopharmacology. In each episode, we discuss an article in a peer-reviewed journal. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. to talk about the uh, Cannabis Museum first? Uh, yeah, uh, Yes, some exciting news on the Cannabis uh, Museum down here in Athens, Ohio. So, you know, we had talked in the past and we were sort of um, going back and forth with small improvements. We're renovating this video, this this building from the 1800s that was a general store to a mining company. And so, of course, you know, things pop up. But long story short, the museum now has this occupancy permit, and we are now starting to schedule events, um, and there'll be a you know a whole program of events as we get those developed, um, where people, the public, general public, can come in and see the collection or walk through the gallery um, once uh, once we get that schedule in place. But we do, however, have our first art show coming up. Um, it is an art show that features art created for the Grateful Dead and other performers. Artists include Stanley Mouse, Rick Griffin, Alex Gray, and many others. It includes many artists, signed posters, and original paintings. So most of these are original paintings, you know, real deal, with certificates of authenticity, um, drawn by those very famous guys. And so uh, if you want more info on that, you can just go to at Cannabis Museum on on the social channels um, or find us on Facebook. Uh, Our page is called the Cannabis Museum. Um, but feel free, if you get lost and you want to learn more, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter, at Jay Cachet. Um, but yeah, very excited to announce that, Brian, and hope to get you and maybe even the the broader crew down here sometime to check it out. Yeah, when is, uh, when is that art show, when is the art show going to be? So it will start on the 14th. I think we're going 14th, 15th, 16th. So we'll be open that weekend. And then we might open again. That's the, that's that's what we know for sure, but it's going to start right opening more regularly moving forward. But for, for what we know for sure for this one now, October fourteenth, fifteenth, and sixteenth. So is that just the art show, or is that the actual grand opening? That's that. So what will be on display? Do you mean in the gallery will be the circuit, the psychedelic art that will be up for sale? It's okay. not going to be like the entire collection of the cannabis museum stuff. Okay. Okay. Cool, cool. Yeah, yeah and I'll link um, to the event page and all the pages in the description. At some point, I'm getting a, um ex- exhibition, or I'm going to be the director of the exhibition that we'll probably have open for two to three or four weeks that people can come in and check out. But I just mentioned that because I'm going to be the curator putting together the show. It's going to be based on the stuff that I think is interesting, so maybe I'm a little bit biased, but I know for sure that that one's going to be a great show. Um, and this psychedelic art show, you know, these are one-of-a-kind original paintings by... Alex Gray or, you know, those guys. It's just sort of amazing even be in the same room as them. Wow. Um, but, yeah, exciting things to come, and the museum is open. That's awesome. That's awesome. 
So, yeah, this paper is, uh, the title is Kratom Alkaloid Mitragenine Inhibition of Chemotherapy-Induced Peripheral Neuropathy in Mice is Dependent on Sex and Active Adrenergic and Opioid Receptors. Uh... That's the title. Um, this is from Temple University's Center for Substance Abuse Research and their Department of Pharmacology. And um, yeah, it was it was one of those ones there where they seem to cover all the bases there. Um, and and it's good for two reasons because I don't think we've ever talked about um, my tragedy as a uh, uh, chemotherapy uh, pain relief. Um, drug, and there I don't think there's been much on it. And uh, another thing they do is address uh, the differences between male and female um, with um, pain threshold and and right, yeah, yeah. And um, I so was that's a good one. I thought it was pretty great just to even tackle. Like, you know, I guess it, I don't know why it sort of struck me as like, oh, wow. Um, like, you know, I was sort of like, oh, wow. And in terms of how, how clearly we know that these cancer drugs cause long-term lasting like neurodegeneration and that leads to the pain um, and dealing with that pain for the rest of your life. So yeah, it's like not, it's, it's like, uh, I guess just for me uncovering that when you get this chemotherapy and it leads to nerve damage and in the long term, even if the cancer is gone, that long term nerve damage can persist, causing, you know, permanent uncomfortableness and pain. Um, and so how do doctors treat that, I think, is really is what we're getting at. And this right, if I, if I run it right, is that right, Brian? Yeah, yeah. And um, so this this particular one is chemotherapy induced peripheral neuropathy so this is like neuropathic pain um so i talked to a lot of people on here that have had i mean this would be closer like fibromyalgia has like a neuropathic element and then there's you know people who use kratom because they were injured in the past or or they've worked in physical labor their whole lives and it helps with that but this is like it, this is another paper showing that uh, the my tragedy helps with uh, neuro chemo, chemotherapy induced peripheral neuropathy, and I looked up a de- definition for that, and uh, this is from uh, the JAMA network, um, and I'll have a link to that. But it says uh, peripheral neuropathy refers to symptoms arising from damage to peripheral nerves. These nerves carry sensation control movements of the arms and legs and control of the bladder and bowel chemotherapy and other drugs used to treat cancer can cause peripheral neuropathy. Um, and so the, the particular chemotherapy drug they're using in this is ox, I have it. I have the pronunciation. Oxaliplatin. Do you hear Oxaliplatin. that? Oxaliplatin. Yeah. Yeah, Oxaliplatin. That's exactly <laughs> the word I was looking up out of produce to Oxaliplatin. Yeah. Or you call it the O word, the big O. Maybe that's uh, that's tough. Oxaliplatin. 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 Sally. Oxaliplatin. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, so apparently, I mean, this causes this so often that you can just give it to mice to induce that kind of condition which is interesting and then the condition is 
Yeah. Aladonia? Aladonia. Aladonia, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And Aladonia is defined as pain due to a stimulus that does not normally provoke pain. An example would be a light feather touch that should only produce a sensation, but it causes pain. They had equal groups of male and female mice. Um, They gave them this oxaliplatin, and that induced this condition of pain. Right, the uh, animal model of the pain. Right, yeah. Yeah, and, yep. and I'm just reading, I'll just quote under the results. It says, Oxaliplatin produced mechanical hypersensitivity of approximately equal severity in male and female mice. So they're starting with like a pretty equal baseline in the sexes. Along with mitragenine, they're testing kind of the um, receptor pathways. So they're going to use, they'll use naltrexone, which is the opioid antagonist. Uh, they'll use uh-huh. prazosin. That's an alpha-1 adrenergic antagonist. The bean, uh, alpha-2 adrenergic uh-huh. antagonist. And propanol, propanol. propanol is uh, the beta blocker, or it's also uh, the beta adrenergic antaz- antagonist. So these are all um, drugs that are used for other conditions, but they're basically, I guess they're using them in mice to test pathways that mitragenine takes um, in its um, analgesic uh, effects. So for certain, yeah. Propanol, also known as the Michael Jackson drug. That's what he was getting injected with the, the day that he died. He kept he was sort of addicted to that. Yeah. And that's um, that slows down your heart rate because uh, I looked up a little bit for that, and it's usually prescribed for high blood pressure. Yeah. Oh, he took for propanol. Sure. Okay. I thought that was. F- and I, no, Prince was fentanyl. <laughs> Prince was fentanyl. Yeah, or, or Polly at this point. But I thought you broke it down very well. Like in order to understand, like to tease apart some of the mechanisms behind it, they were using all of these known and and often used, like the naloxone or attract. Um, naloxone in the studies to sort of say, okay, well, is it scenario A A or scenario B? And by using those um, different blockers that would presumably prevent the effects from the the tragenine from reaching the receptors, they can tell what is like necessary for an improvement and what isn't necessary for improvement. So yeah, I think you characterized that that great. Can I just, let me say just, just philosophically, and I don't know, maybe it's the mood that I woke up in today or what, but I haven't haven't been in a neuro class in a while, but to me, like, it's just so wild to me that you can get exposed to a drug and you can even be exposed to a drug in a medical setting, like these uh, chemotherapy agents, and it is very clearly causing nerve damage and you're going to end up with like a neuropathy your entire life. Um, but the benefits outweigh the risks. In most cases, most people would rather get, want to get rid of the cancer, but ultimately you have some form of neurodegradation, right? Yeah. And so that degradation only surfaces um, and like its symptoms are mostly internal and pain-related. On the flip side of that, you could take another drug, and there's many other different ones, but uh, that also lead to like prolonged exposure to an amphetamine or a dopaminergic um, will help will ha- cause neuropathy in different dopaminergic neurons, uh, uh, you know, in central and also periphery. But that leads to movement disorders, and mm. that you know the the the, the problem um, or the the risky side effects of the cancer drugs that lead to pain 
you know, why aren't they, why aren't they shaking also if it's, a, if it's, uh, you know, a nervous system degenerative order? It's, it's a rather rudimentary idea that I'm exploring or like, you know, skirting around here. I just, sometimes I get stuck in the awe of like, a lot of people, and I think a lot of people get stuck in the odd thing, like one one machine or one system is used to do X or used to do Y. But then when you break that machine down, depending on how it broke down, you're going to have vastly different outcomes, whether that be like uncontrollable movements or seizuring, um, all the way down to things that people can't even see, but you are subjectively experiencing. And it's kind of wild to me. I didn't really look at what exactly the oxaliplatin does in the first place. I, guess, I mean, it's chemotherapy, so I guess that it actually kills cancer cells, right? Do we know that it causes neuropathy pain and like pain? So now we're just giving giving it to animals at the high, high higher doses than normal in order to study the pain and where it comes from. It just yeah. seems kind of wild. So it looks like it is a type of molecule that when injected into the body, and I think it was discovered with um, rectile cancer, colon cancer, correctile cancer, it interacts with the DNA of your blood cells in that area. And, you know, of course, cancer cells, one of their, you know, main sort of ways to survive is to trick angiogenesis and get more blood brought to them than the other surrounding tissue. But what it sounds like is that it just basically is attracted to these cancerous cells and almost fight them. According to in vivo studies, uh, oxaliplatin fights carcinoma of the colon through non-targeted psychotoxic effects. Like other platinum compounds, it is cytotoxicity is thought to result from an inhibition of DNA synthesis in the cells. So it... it uh, in particular, it forms both inner and intralinks cross cells in the DNA, which prevent the DNA from replicating. So, yeah, I guess it's the plasma helps the doctor sort of target and get it, or the platinum, I mean, their, their platinum tag, help them get it to where they need to get it to sort of concentrate in the area around where your tumor is. And then it sounds like it's just pretty nonspecific cell death in the general area by messing up the transcription of the DNA completely. Okay. So that's probably why it would, like, cause all those side effects, I guess, since it's nonspecific. Yeah, yeah, but, and so I guess it would be, because it's nonspecific, but, like, in Parkinson's, it's very specific. Um, we know yeah. what neurons die, and that leads to Parkinson's, and it just squalls me. It's the same system, two different outcomes. Um but yeah, I think uh, the non-specific effects of the chemo, and I think bringing your immune system down so you can, you know, fight off, you know, what you what is directly in front of you. Yep, yep. So you get Stuff cancer, they'll yeah, you get cancer, mm -hmm. they'll give you this drug that gives you all kinds of side effects, and that's where okay, that's where I get to this part. Um, I'm just this, I'm just gonna read from the introduction a little bit, but it said uh, drug classes implemented to treat neuropathic pain include antidepressants, anticonvulsants, and opioids. Uh, compounds such as mu opioid receptor agonists are not optimal for chronic use due to the limited therapeutic benefit and increased risk of harm despite being used by up to 97% of CIPN patients. Uh, currently available treatments for chronic neuropathic pain are effective in less than 50% of patients and are often accompanied by adverse effects during prolonged use. And then I read kind of from the uh, study a little bit that they 
um, cited for this because I'm I'm interested in like I thought you know a lot of these um, opioids would help most people but I, I guess by risk of harm they probably mean uh, addiction or dependency and, and yeah what, it's like a political lack of favoring from this study it was it was uh, the Finner up 2015 I'll read from that a little bit strong opioids are now recommended as third line contrasting with several prior recommendations uh, in which they are generally considered as first or second line. This mainly stems from the consideration of potential risk of abuse with high doses and concerns about recent increase in opioid-associated overdose mortality and misuse. So that was from 2015, this study that they cited. Um, and that's pretty interesting because, like, it, was, it wasn't until 2016 that the CDC put out those guidelines for opioid prescribing which which the uh, they plummeted in prescribing but then uh overdose deaths from like street fentanyl started uh skyrocketing so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's- there was one part where you were discussing um what patients do use for basically the point i'm trying to make though is it was like 96 percent of the 96 percent of the cancer patients are using opiates I would say I would argue that's because they work, and like yeah, the, yeah, that's different from the concern of long-term addiction or dependency. It's not necessarily that these don't work for them or they're subpar. They they work in in controlling the pain. In fact, that's why the large majority of people are on them in this scenario. And then the other ones were antidepressants and anticonvulsants. You know, I don't know exactly how they help with actual pain, especially like neuropathic pain. I guess anticonvulsants, the condition we were talking about before, allodonia, might help with that since it's, mm-hmm. you know, it affects the movements. And then the other thing they talk about here is se- differences in sex. And I'll just read from that. This is the introduction still. Um, in general, CDC data suggests that the prevalence of both chronic pain and high-impact chronic pain is greater among U.S. adult females compared to males. Several studies have reported greater prevalence of numerous forms of neuropathic pain in females, but it says um, CIPN from oxaliplatin occurs in comparable rates among males and females. That's why they chose it for baseline. They also say, and I don't think I highlighted it, but they also say about, you know, about the whole pain thing and the uh, abuse. This is basically why they're testing my tragedy because it was lower uh, abuse potential than the opiates. They usually say that in a lot. I mean, that's the reason they're doing a lot of these because they're looking for a uh, less addictive, uh, so to speak, um, pain treatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And this this paper's pursuing it with, with mechanistically, right? Where we have all of those, and they're being mindful of potential sex hormonal differences and how that affects the outcomes. So I think I think we you know set the stage here for a pretty good experiment. Yeah, and it says um, they do my tragedy at 1, 5, or 10 milligrams per kilogram, which I didn't do the human equivalent dose, but, but that seems pretty high. And and then it said, okay, so the differences for the male and female. Females started to see um, the analgesic effects at 10 milligrams per kilogram at the high dose. Uh, I think males started at 5. Um, so that kind of backs up the hypothesis presented that, you know, females have a lower pain threshold. And it says um, mechanical threshold. Um, I'm, the results I'm looking at kind of, I'm going to look at like the um, 
the charts, the figures, mechanical hypersensitivity. Yeah. So what what is that exactly? Uh, mechanical threshold, I mean. Um, they show mechanical threshold. Well, I think threshold. they're using a hop plate. A baseline mechanical sensitivity. A mechanical sensitivity would be anything that you like are touching. So if you have your hand on the top hot plate um, and how quickly you move it off once it reaches a certain temperature, what temperature that is, when you pull your hand off, that would be a measure of your sensitivity to that. And so different animals have different sensitivities. It could be like um, a shock. It could be keeping your hand on ice, but it's something that is like you could be getting pinched. Um, it's something that is uh, like physically happening to you that you would uh, naturally pull away once it restarted reading a certain threshold. And then so when you change from that, you either can experience more pain or less pain. That's the idea. Yeah. You know what? I think they didn't have to do the hot plate because the oxalic plate and, uh, induced the hypersensitivity to pain. The Aladonia were. Oh, yeah. I think, I think oh, you're right. Oh. Because they were already exposed to the drug, they're already experiencing yeah. neuropathic pain to a certain extent. Uh, mechan- and their baseline would be lower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, mechanical Aladonia was uh, assessed using Von Frey monofilaments of varying forces applied to the plantar surface of the right hind paw. So they were uh, poking their paws. <laughs> 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 I don't think. I think. That, yeah, that's a scientific term for them. But I would describe them as like little feather ticklers with known diameters, and like the smaller they get, you know, it'd be like you just have a very nice set of these metal things that go from like point zero one millimeter up to like a millimeter, and depending on you know the type of data you're collecting. But yeah, depending on the size of the poker, that gives you an indication uh, of the sensitivity there. <laughs> Good call, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they didn't need the hot plate. Okay. Figure one is looking at um, the differences between the control and those that were exposed to the oxapatin, the, our um, plate. cancer chemo, chemo. Yeah. Yeah. What is it again? Oxaliplatin. Oxaliplatin. Yep. So I think this is showing that the baseline versus oxaliplatin, the oxaliplatin animals by day two and definitely by day four and five have a much lower uh, sensitivity than the controls that were not exposed to that chemo drug. Figure two, it just shows oxaliplatin with the V and then with one, five, and ten mitragenine. Males had a higher mechanical threshold across the board. Than females and females, it looked like it started to work most effective for both at ten milligrams per kilogram of mitragyny, which makes common sense. Let me. Oh, I see what you're saying. So maybe yeah. you could you can maybe suggest that in females, a lower dose is females potentially you could use a lower dose to get the same amount of release. Well, I think the females actually need more for it to be effective because they have a lower. Let me read the note that I pulled out um my tragedy mm-hmm. prevented the development of oxaliplatin induced mechanical hypersensitivity in both male and female mice in males my significantly inhibited oxaliplatin induced hypersensitivity at doses of five and ten milligrams per kilogram and females my produced significant anti-allodonic effects only at the high dose of 10 milligrams per kilogram however we found that 10 milligrams of Per kilogram, mitragenine produced significantly higher mechanical threshold values in males compared to females, suggested of sex differences in the therapeutic efficacy of mitragenine. So the only clinically significant, statistically significant um, one was the difference between the uh, drug plus vehicle 
um, and then the drug plus uh, 10. So the first bar and the far bar, those were the only significantly different ones uh, okay. overall. Is that right? Is that what you just said? In males, it was five. It started at five. Um, and this is figure two. And, and then uh, in females, it was only at 10. Uh, in the female mice. Oh, gotcha. Right. So yeah, yeah they so they said five and ten in okay. males and and ten in uh, females. They don't really have a line for yeah. where it's uh, statistically significant. I guess it would be point point six or higher. It is. Yeah, it's a little like tough yeah. tough one to figure out. But I guess the walk away on this one is that both male and female mice, like we can reduce their neuropathic pain through at least ten milligram ten milligrams per kilogram body weight of metragenine yeah. thus far. Yeah. That's yeah. what we learned here. Yeah. Okay. What is figure three just kind of just zooming in on the male and female differences? Yeah. Figure three is just kind of what we talked about. They're just kind of zooming in on that 10 milligrams per kilogram. Now, figure four. Yeah, they're zooming in on the ones that are yeah. relevant. Hold on real quick because it's just the relevant ones here. So yeah. it is that male first dose vehicle compared to highest dose, significantly different. Within female, lowest dose vehicle versus highest dose metragenine, significantly different from each other. And there's a difference between uh, the male and the female in terms of their mechanical threshold after metragenine. Um, mm-hmm. It seems like a big difference, but like twice as much. Right. Whereas when they just get the vehicle with the oxaliplate, they're about the same. Males are slightly higher. But once the metragenine goes, gets in, it, males have like, uh, it, it affects males better because they have a much higher threshold threshold for the pain and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so it's I, I guess it would suggest that the female you know the female mice need more mitragenine to get to that higher threshold level or they would need more even more mitragenine than this in order to sustain pain up to that level yeah, yeah. the next part is all the different antagonists that they are given and uh, there's and it still shows like pretty significant differences with males and females um, for the mitragenine, but not so much for the um, naloxone plus mitragenine. There, it's about the same. It's not naloxone, naltrexone. Yeah. That's that's what I meant to say. Naltrexone in the um, mechanical threshold, naltrexone lowers the effects. And and I could just read from it just to explain it a, a little. Um, uh-huh. A little better. So naltrexone pretreatment significantly blocked the anti-allodynic effect of mitragenine alone across all three doses of males, indicating a mu-opioid component of mitragenine. Uh, we kind of already know about that. But it, interestingly, though, it says no dose of naltrexone tests significantly blocked that of mitragenine alone in females, suggesting differences in the opioid components of mitragenine between sexes. Prezosin uh, was the only test that inhibited mitragenine's therapeutic effect in both sexes. This suggests a central role of alpha-1 adrenergic receptor activation in mitragenine pharmacology. Interesting, interesting, yeah. Yoambine is the um, alpha-2 adrenergic, and it's significantly blocked mitragenine's effects to males only, and uh, propanol was the only antagonist tested in which its pretreatment did not result in significant inhibition of mitragenine's anti-allodynic, which means in this case anti-pain, but they're being specific to the type of pain, in either sex, suggesting that beta-adrenergic receptors likely did not contribute to the development and maintenance of CIPN. And it, it also says the dual 
mu opioid and alpha adrenergic components of mitragyny raises questions of whether these receptor systems are activated to achieve therapeutic efficacy through independent mechanisms or perhaps acting in a synergistic manner through a common downstream pathway. But I'm not exactly sure what that means, but I want to get back to that. But I was going to bring up Abhishek Sharma, the scientist at University of Florida, was talking about how... And, and we've had another paper that showed the um, adrenergic effects of mitragynine. Uh-huh. But he was talking about how... And I'm going to play a clip here, and I hope this works. But he was talking about how mitragynine is a combination of uh, drugs used to treat opioid dependence because it, it does activate uh, the adrenergic receptors. And I might oh, yeah, actually cut it down. Yeah, and this is from um, episode 45, I think. Yeah, of the podcast. Here we go. If you think about like what people give for, what, what we need for any opioid dependence or opioid withdrawal symptom, like what kind of treatment do we need? So what is in marketplace is either they will give you give a weak opioid agonist, so it will occupy the receptor, but will not cause, will not activate that particular pathway to which is responsible for the problem. The second treatment is you give alpha-2, you will go through alpha-2 agonist properties, like uh, you, you do clonidine, you do lofexidine. But when you look at the mitragynine molecule and you look at the mitragynine receptor binding data, so first thing, mitragynine is a partial opioid agonist. You give any amount of mitragynine, the maximum effect you can achieve is 40% of any full opioid agonist like Damgo or morphine. So it will never, you will never reach at that particular high thing. Then it, it shows activity through alpha-2 receptor. The same activity you get get it through through clonidine and lofexidine, and then it acts through serotonin receptor and as well as dopamine. So the mitragynine itself is a combination of four drugs given before different receptor binding receptor occupancy thing receptor binding thing which you need to treat opioid withdrawal, and that is the advantage this molecule have. It's like you you mixed four drugs in a treatment therapy to get to treat the opioid dependence and you can get the same thing in with one mitragynine molecule yeah so that's it he was talking about how mitragynine does the work of those four uh drugs that are given for opioid treatment opioid addiction treatment yeah it's a it's all yeah. four of those targets that's yeah. interesting stuff man yeah, and so it and it's kind of and it's kind of cool here because it's saying well maybe the adrenergic component of it is also part of the pathway that treats the pain. It's not, it's not just mu opioid because I think like seven hydroxy mm-hmm. is is just the mu opioid receptor. It's a partial agonist, but it's still only it's like highly selected of that one receptor. Whereas whereas this is show it's shown in this that. Yeah, mitragynine acts on adrenergic as well. So it's like kind of like uh, unique in that way compared to other um, opioids that they're using for for this kind of pain treatment. Yeah, and also, I mean, it's opening up our understanding of what pain is and what causes it. I think that gets back to sort of the, the stuff I was talking about, Parkinson's versus like a lifelong neuropathy, right? There, It's the same system, but there are many things that can go wrong with it and like, most times we figure out these, we tease out these like very tight, complex interactions and connections that are always ongoing and always unchanging. Like, 
on when one part of them, part of them goes wrong. And then we can get in there and like say, oh yeah, it was this part that went wrong. And now we know that that's sort of the, you know, the primary etiology of a certain disease set. So, you know, I think we, you know, we, we talk a lot about the different receptor subtypes and the plants, but as it always is, you know, that's, it's complex plant. It's with a complex profile going into a complex brain. Um, but you know, we keep at it and then maybe we'll learn something at the end of the day. Yeah. And, and just the, my tragedy alone and in itself is complex. And it says right in this part, I read it before, but I'm trying to figure out exactly what this means. And maybe you can shine a light on it, but it says the dual mu opioid and alpha adrenergic components of my tragedy raises the questions of whether these receptor systems are activated to achieve efficacy through independent mechanisms or perhaps acting in a synergistic manner through a common downstream pathway. So what do they mean by independent mechanisms and and common downstream pathway? I'm not exactly sure. So we're just getting that sentence for face value alone. I don't know exactly what they're talking about, but a good analogy would be essentially like through independent interactions or independent mechanisms. So an independent mechanism would be like, you want to open three windows of your house and you go and open one window and then there's, you got, you got stuff coming into that window. You open a second window and it comes into that window. Let's say it's raining on the side of the first house. So you get rain coming through that window and then sunny day on the other side versus a synergistic action is essentially like, you know, sliding those two windows together or opening a double bay door is that the two separate uh, things that can function independently and allow things to pass through them come together now. And then most times they're just like, it's two windows that are not joined. Um, They're just not separated by a wall anymore. The, The dimerization. So, you know, receptors that function on their own independently and have specific ligands, um, but, or they end up like bumping around in the neuronal, wall uh the sort of stew up there and form these dimers or tridimer you know there's there's more than just two with other receptors and that can have changes downstream in terms of what proteins are released and how it may affect like dna translation or transcription um and it's like uh with beta arrestin in in the kratom uh conversation so if it doesn't recruit and bind beta arrestin um okay yeah you know that's all right i kind of understand that a little better now and then the next one that says um interestingly evidence suggests opioid adrenergic synergistic interactions are limited to the spinal cord uh overall this distribution pattern suggests my tragedy may be may achieve therapeutic efficacy through modulating active opioid and adrenergic receptors that are in series with one another within spinal pathways it is a central loci, but, and maybe it is the, for the, you know, adrenergic opiate synergistic interactions. Like it's a different type of pain, uh, something that like, you know, it may be a different neurotransmitter for heat versus for cold or something like that. Yeah. Some pure speculation on my end. Yeah. And, and they just kind of mentioned that in this, in the discussion. So this paper doesn't have a very wide ranging explanation of how that works Uh, but i think uh, one of the older papers we did mention that but i don't think specifically that those kind of that is in the spinal cord and the other interesting thing is um they mentioned a study that reported higher concentrations of 7-hydroxymitragenine were obtained in male mice compared to females um just from metabolizing metragenine which is another interesting sex difference and and it did mention that you know they mm-hmm. they, they haven't done a lot of uh, gender differences in 
I guess in my tragedy in any way, which it seems like with these pl- pretty stark contrasts and in, in the way um, in the threshold and everything that they should probably do that every time to- every time they study at least a, a pain um, response. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For sure. Your grandma gets cancer after reading this, and she doesn't want to take any painkillers, and she and she's not even taking. Maybe she'll take a Tylenol if it's real bad. But are you making her a tea and just telling her to try it? Well, both my grammars are dead, so that's <laughs> ship has sailed. Uh, oh yeah, Oops. yeah. No, I mean I would for um, like my sister got cancer and and what she passed away from it. But I I just remember all these like complications on top of the chemotherapy on top of it whereas my mom got it and she responded pretty well chemo she had you know she had like general um and she she never had to go in for radiation or anything she just had to take the chemo drugs and a lot of it was just oral um drugs she took at home but she'd be like nauseated for a week um Mm. but she like like yeah my mom uh, I, I wouldn't give her kratom because it's the, the, the she's prone to seizures, and uh, I I know people get like the eye wobbles and stuff, so I'd be I'd be kind of worried about giving her kratom. Yeah, but I probably will with my. Well, I would dad. say after this, <laughs> I would say after this, I'm sort of um, neutral at this point. Like I didn't know anything beforehand. I think it's sort of like a hey, you know, it's worth a shot. It's not going to do any harm type situation of course you got to check with your doctor on all of that especially during cancer treatment but you know i guess i was on the fence and now i'm leaning towards oh it'll be fine and if it works and they enjoy it that's great you know if they're gets them in the right mindset but that's it's really not what the authors of this paper are saying you know that's just our reading the paper once or twice and then relaying it to the public and i wanted yeah. to catch him off guard and see if he was a pro or con <laughs> so sorry about that brian yeah no, 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 no. I know. I got. I went. I went. I went into like a way too deep, longer discussion. <laughs> yeah, and that other thing. So this company is a Vancouver-based company. Um, their file. They filed a patent for a deuterated form, and I'm probably not pronouncing that right, but I'll just say it like that. Deuterated form. No, you're, you're right. Okay. Yeah. Of, of seven hydroxymetragenine called. And they're calling it D7H. The company, they're called Nirvana Life Sciences, intends to pursue D7H as a pain-relieving drug. I just published a blog post about this, so I'm reading from it. Citing 7-HMG's partial opioid agonism and the deuteration process process that they say makes the drug last longer. Um, They said that it it has a longer half-life because of that process. And so the thing I was worried about is... Okay, and so there was another company that actually did this to mitragynine. They have a deuterate in mitragynine, and that's like Cures Inc., and they call it KUR101. And they're in clinical trials with that now. It's a deuterate in mitragynine. And I asked, I emailed Christopher McCurdy about this, and he he replied that... Um, you know, he said there's been no science in the and in the scientific or patent literature, so we really don't know exactly, you know, what it's going. Um, but he said seven um, OH is known not to be necessary for affinity, which means, which I was asking him about, you know, it's not necessary for the pain relieving effects of mitragynine. 
Uh, he said it's a sh- right. He said it's a shape issue that is imparted to the overall structure that makes. 7.0 fit in opioid receptors with great affinity and selectivity, replacing the OH, uh, the hydroxy, with a deuterium would afford the same shape change and allow for patent protection and possible met- better metabolic stability, but there's no data to base that statement on that he's aware of. Um, so he, he's like, yeah, uh, that's interesting, but we'll, we'll, we'll have to see what the, if the data comes out, but I'm just worried because, you know, he's he even told me, you know, if you take 7-hydroxy out of the mix, he calls it like a symphony orchestra, and if you turn 7-hydroxy uh-huh. up on full blast, um, he said it's comparable to full opioid agonists like morphine and fentanyl. So it's kind of like one of those things where, you know, if this, this company's going to have to be really careful about, you know, marketing this thing, because... Because if, if there's a mitragynine, I guess it's semi-synthetic because they're taking the actual, they're just messing with the molecules so they can patent it, basically. Right, right. Um, so, and is there a risk of taking the, the, the heavier hydrogen, molecules with the heavier hydrogen, like out of a clinical setting? Yeah, I, yeah, I would think so. Because I think that's probably, it's probably just more habit forming uh and and they and you know there's been studies out that says it shows abuse potential like uh some rat studies though though um the rats will um well, are you self, talking about oh are you talking about oh, just den- uh, neuterated oh okay so i was just yeah. talking about the denuterated in general like just tagged molecules like i i don't really yeah well yeah there hasn't been any time. yeah there i mean for as far as um my tragedy and seven hydroxy those ones that they came up with there i don't think there's been anything published yet it's just the companies came up with them applied for a patent and um the one company uh. is doing um a clinical trial it's supposed to be out in october so if there is some kind of huh. study out um then maybe we could look at it but it's uh i found it was it's on clinicaltrials.gov that they are actually doing clinical trials for this Cure 101, which is the uh, deuterated mitragynine. Yeah, you know, I, unfortunately, the skeptic in me thinks that the deuterated is more about getting in and having a patentable medication versus is like making it better or worse than mitragynine for patients. But, yeah, you know, you got to have money to push those clinical trials through. So I'm not going to knock anybody for doing it and not going to knock anybody for wanting to recruit that investment. I'd have to look into it more, but it's very cool. And I guess, you know, when we started doing this one maybe a year ago, I don't think I would have said that we would have uh, – I would have guessed back then that you and me would be spending more time on picket lines, you know, protesting certain things than sort of um, seeing a continual growth of more and good science and a community grow behind it and, like, uh, advocacy, advocacy increasing. It's good stuff. It's interesting. And I, and I did, like, email – I found the guy, but I did uh, email the um, – the one of the founders of the company about about this and i asked if he's worried that it would be you know more uh, habit forming since there's been studies on uh, greater abuse potential in 7 hydroxy uh-huh. uh, so um did you respond not yet i only emailed him this morning but if he does i'll include it in there and i'll talk about it next time Thank you, Dr. John Cachet. Uh, check out the Cannabis Museum on Facebook. Uh, the event info is on Facebook, and it's in Athens, Ohio. It's October 14th, 15th, and 16th. 
The music is Captain Big Wheel. The song is called Moon Runner. Check out Jonathan Cachet at Cachet. Please like, subscribe, share, rate, review, comment. Kratom Science Journal Club is produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. Take care.